Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today as we together study the Come Follow Me lesson for August 3rd through 9th. And this week we will be discussing Alma chapters 43 through 52. Well, as I'm still in the U.S. and I don't know when I will be heading back to Hong Kong, and that's perfectly fine with me because, as you know, my family is here. So, unfortunately, my background is much more boring as I film this from my my closet, actually. It's kind of the best place where I can uh, be certain that I have I won't be disturbing others and I won't be disturbed by others. But, unfortunately, in my closet, my background is not nearly as interesting is that from my office floor in central Hong Kong. So I apologize for that, but hopefully the content uh, is decent and hopefully makes up for uh, the boring background that you are confronted with. Well, uh, I think we'll just go ahead and dive into this lesson. We have a lot of material to cover. Uh, it covers 10 chapters. Uh, 10 of the war chapters in the Book of Mormon, and actually covers 30 pages of printed text. Uh, so it's a lot of material. And I'll say, as I sat down and began to prepare this lesson, as you know, my normal uh, method is to basically go chapter by chapter, highlighting the verses that I think are, are meaningful. And, and I do that because I assume that as the authors of whatever scripture, book of scripture that we're studying, in this case, the Book of Mormon, and the, the author or the editor of the Book of Mormon uh, is largely Mormon. Uh, I, I therefore assume that Mormon put the material in the Book of Mormon for a reason. That is, there's a reason, you know, Alma chapter 2 follows Alma chapter 1, and then 3 and 4 come after that. Uh, and, 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 you know, I, I assume that Alma was, or sorry, I assume that Mormon was thinking uh, and, and looking for patterns and trying to place certain chapters in certain places that would provide us clues uh, in the text itself uh, as to how uh, he expects us or what he hopes us uh, to, for us to be able to take out of, uh, out, out of the material that we're actually studying. Um, so for that reason, my, my usual method of study is to just basically plow through the chapters as, there are, as they are presented, uh, looking for patterns and trying to, um, I guess in some ways guess, but also, you know, try to discover, uh, the gems that Mormon puts in there and, and the reasons why he orders certain texts and certain stories and certain lessons and certain sermons, why he orders them, uh, in the way that he does. These are not just random stories taken and thrown in there. Uh, Mormon was very careful, and, and the other editors of the Book of Mormon, the other authors, they were very careful as they put these things together and as they constructed this book, because there were specific lessons that they wanted us as the readers to draw, uh, not just from the words that were there, but from the way in which the stories were assembled together. Um, and so as we look for patterns in the stories, it can be very beneficial uh, to go through the book in order. Again, that's because I assume that these guys put it in the order that we have it uh, for, a, for a specific reason. But with these chapters, as I sat down, I realized there was just way too much material to cover. Uh, and if I were to do a chapter by chapter, blow by blow, going through and finding the verses that I find most uh, interesting and then... Uh, discussing those verses, uh, this would be a, a three or four hour lesson. And to be honest, I don't have time to prepare that. And you probably aren't that interested in listening to that log of a lesson. Um, so because of that, uh, this lesson uh, today, the format is a little different than I normally do. And then looking ahead, I see next week, we also have about 10 chapters, not quite as many pages, but 
certainly more material than we've uh, normally than we've dealt with in the past. Um, we'll have to see how next week's lesson uh, shapes up. But this week, as I was going through, uh, I instead of again instead of doing a chapter by chapter blow, uh, I identified certain themes uh, that popped out to me, that that stuck out to me, that I think. Again, this is me trying to put myself in the shoes of Mormon, but you know, assuming that he put these texts together uh, for in, in an order and for a specific reason. So as I went through these chapters, I tried to identify certain themes that Mormon uh, was was highlighting uh, that that repeatedly repeat themselves and I think are applicable to us uh, in our day. Because again, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we believe that the Lord gave us the Book of Mormon for our day. And so there should be patterns within the book uh, that are important for us in our lives today. Now, one of the beautiful things about scripture is, is that it is applicable in any day. Uh, you can certainly read the New Testament and get you know, marvelous gems out of there that are very applicable uh, to our day uh, from those stories. But of course, the Savior was speaking to people in his time as he gave those parable, parables and as he gave those stories. Uh, the Book of Mormon is a little bit, uh, it's certainly similar in that aspect and that, you know, what happened here was very meaningful to the Nephites and meaningful to Mormon as he was compiling these stories. Uh, but we're told that Mormon has seen our day and that the reason that he's presenting uh, these stories and preparing this book is for us today. Now, does that mean is it for us as Latter-day Saints in the year 2020? Or is it Latter-day Saints in the year 1920 or the year 1820? Obviously, our circumstances are very, very different. Um, but I don't think we need to get hung up on that because if it is a book of Scripture, there should be patterns that uh, repeat themselves and are applicable um, to people really in any day because we believe that we're, pe we're preaching you know, eternal universal truths here that are applicable to all people um, in all times. And certainly that is the case with the chapters that we will be uh, studying and discussing today. So again, my, my method uh, and with this lesson is not a blow-by-blow -blow approach going through each chapter, uh, but highlighting and, and identifying certain themes that perhaps Mormon was trying to uh, get us to notice uh, as he was relaying these stories. And, you know, it's it interesting as I was going through, I, you know, one of the thoughts that I had, and I don't necessarily have a good answer for this, is, you know, Mormon spills a lot of ink, or I guess in his case, spent a lot of time carving uh, the, a lot of details in these stories. And that's, that's very interesting to me. Um, because I, I recognize that while these stories are certainly applicable, and certainly uh, meaningful. And we, we can take a lot from these stories and we can apply them to our lives. They're clearly not the same type of uh, scripture that you might find in say Alma 32 or Alma 5 or uh, you know 2 Nephi 31 or some of the other great discourses within the Book of Mormon where we really get deep into doctrine. Uh, the, these stories are different. I mean, these are very historical stories. Uh, they're told in a very factual way. Uh, we get some editorializing from Mormon, but not a ton, uh, to be honest. Um, and so it's very interesting to me that Mormon spent so much time um, putting so many details about these stories in here. Uh, I, again, I think the principles that we'll be talking about today kind of shed some light onto why he did that. Uh, but I'll admit why he spent so much details, uh, spent, spent time providing so much details is not completely um, clear to me. Maybe one day it will be clear to me. Um, but I'll just say it seems a little unusual that he goes into so much details uh, talking about the affairs of the Nephites and the Lamanites and these you know, this period of time, which really in Nephite history is, is really not that long, uh, about 10 to 20 year period in which you have all of this fighting going on. And you get a lot of details about that fighting over a very, very short period of time, um, you know, covering a lot of pages, a lot of chapters within the Book of Mormon that you wonder if it could have been spent providing other uh, information. 
but it's not. Here it is. And this is what Mormon uh, was inspired to provide. And so it's, you know, our job to either say, okay, this is kind of boring, let's move on and get past to get, get to the doctrinal stuff, or, you know, try to really uh, identify what are some of the patterns, what are some of the reasons that Mormon might have uh, provided these details. Now, uh, with that uh, as a background, and with that kind of uh, introduction, uh, let's go ahead and get into these chapters. If you recall, last week we ended with Alma uh, preaching to uh, Corianton, his son, who was struggling, and ends with the uh, lessons about uh, restoration and resurrection and the plan of salvation and atonement. And we go right from there into war chapters. So if we're talking about the plan of salvation, if we're talking about this process that we all have to go through uh, to return to the presence of God, uh, then possibly uh, one way to understand these war chapters is, well, now let's talk about different ways of going through that process, confronting the different challenges that we will confront. And what are the ways that we will do so successfully? Uh, how can we successfully confront the challenges that we will meet in a way that will prepare us to return to our uh, heavenly parents? And that is certainly, uh, I, I think that's obviously one of the reasons that the war chapters are here. They are analogous to our lives and to our processes that we all have to go through as sons and daughters of heavenly parents uh, put here on earth for a purpose. And as we understand it, that purpose is that we will confront the challenges uh, of this world, of being separated from our heavenly parents, uh, a world in which we have to walk by faith, uh, not knowing for sure, uh, and, and move forward trusting them. All the while, uh, the world around us often is in chaos and commotion. And I think certainly this year, uh, being 2020, uh, certainly with coronavirus, uh, talking about, you know, chaos and commotion, uh, you know, for myself personally, having spent the last 10 years in Hong Kong, which was, was a very tranquil city, uh, you know, a city, you know, focused on, you know, making money, a financial center, you know, where people were just going about their lives uh, with a decent amount of freedom. And then all of a sudden, really within the past year, uh, it's been just a political upheaval as, uh, you know, China passed one law, led to uh, huge amounts of protests. Uh, and then in response to that, China has uh, further cracked down uh, and taken away more of uh, Hong Kong's uh, freedoms that it used to have. And so, you know, with kind of that as a background to me, I can certainly you know, clearly not the same as someone coming and attacking your city with swords and scimitars. I, I get that. Um, but certainly I feel like, in some ways, the peace that I enjoyed for many years, just really out of the blue and for no reason uh, that, that I caused, uh, has been uh, undone, has been uh, upheaved. And, uh, you know, I now confront a, you know, a different situation that I wasn't expecting to be in and trying to manage that while you know, considering the needs of my family, uh, their own safety, their own prosperity, their own uh, physical and spiritual needs uh, is something that I can relate to, uh, certainly better than I could you know, 18 months ago. Um, maybe you feel the same way because of uh, coronavirus or other things happening in your life. And you know, certainly uh, I'm sure you know, we all have different challenges in our lives. And these chapters are wonderful examples of ways in which individuals confront the challenges in their lives, whether they be unexpected political upheaval, whether it be attacks from others, uh, including those who should be our friends, who should be on our side, uh, just a lot of possible applications to these wonderful chapters here. And again, I, I'm, I feel very strongly that that is the reason uh, Mormon put so much effort into providing these stories. Now, again, it seems to me like he might have provided more detail than is necessary, but hey, who am I to, who am I to question Mormon uh, and, and the decisions that he makes? So with that, 
Uh, let's turn to some of the uh, themes that I identified uh, as I went through these 30 pages and 10 chapters. And we'll be reading uh, together some of the verses that, uh, that, that highlight these themes. Uh, and, uh, and then we'll talk about those. So I identified uh, seven different themes, uh, sorry, eight different themes uh, within these chapters and about the way that the Nephites went about their business. Now, the first one has to do with motivations. And that theme is that the Nephites were motivated by a better cause than were the Lamanites. And that certainly to be, seems to be a theme that plays itself out uh, multiple ways uh, in these chapters. Take, for example, uh, chapter 43, verses 8 and 9, where it says, For behold, his designs were to stir up the Lamanites to anger against the Nephites. This he did that he might usurp great power over them, and also that he might gain power over the Nephites by bringing them into bondage. And now the design of the Nephites was to support their lands and their houses and their wives and their children, that they might preserve them from the hands of their enemies, and also that they might preserve their rights and their privileges, privileges yea, and also their liberty, that they might worship God according to their desires. So while the Lamanites were motivated by, by anger and a desire to have power, uh, the Nephites were motivated by uh, the support of their lands, by their houses, their wives and their, uh, by the wives and their children, uh, their love for freedom, for liberty, that they might worship God according to their desires. Now, it seems like the Nephites were, you know, these very wholesome and very pure uh, motives. And that's certainly the, the picture uh, that Mormon uh, presents to us. Now, you know, as with any telling of history, there is going to be uh, some skewing of uh, you know, of the story, and we're only getting one side of the story. I'm sure if you were to look at, uh, if you could talk to Lamanites that were there, they would probably tell you a very different uh, motivating force behind the Nephites and behind themselves. But uh, Mormon is the one holding the pen here, and he's the one that we turn to, and we also, of course, believe that he is the prophet, so that uh, we put uh, trust in what he's trying to tell us. And I think his message here is in our motivations, in the things that we do in our lives, what, what is it that motivates us? What is it that drives us? Are we seeking for power? Are we seeking for wealth? Are we seeking for fame? Are we seeking for control over, over other people? Or are we doing it out of love? Love for others. Love for God. Love for liberty. That plays a, a, a big role here. Um, almost a very uh, you know, American concept um, here. This, this desire for liberty above all else. But these were, these were the motives behind what the Nephites were doing, at least according to what Mormon tells us. <clears throat> and these motives uh, were, were caused, uh, were, were, were supposed to understand or are clearly better than the motives that were causing the Lamanites, which is to control other people. So, you know, as we confront challenges, you know, question one is, what is our motives? What are we trying to do? How are we uh, trying to, uh, you know, what, what is our end game? What is it we're doing for? Uh, and, and if our motives are pure, uh, chances are that the reason that, that the results of, of the actions that we take are going to be good. Even if they might be misunderstood by some, uh, we need to first do a check and make sure that our motives are pure. Another verse that uh, gets at the same idea is chapter 43, verse 45, where it says, Nevertheless, the Nephites were inspired by a better cause, for they were not fighting for monarchy nor power, but they were fighting for their homes and their liberties, their wives and their children, and their all, yea, for their rights of worship and their church. So again, several repeating themes, you know, their homes and their wives and their children and their right to worship. These are the motivating factors behind the, behind the Nephites' efforts. And we need to make sure that as we are going about our lives, these are our motivating efforts. You know, for me personally, I can certainly apply it to my work. I have a very demanding job that takes a lot of my time. And so the question uh, always should be, what is my motivation for the work that I do? Do I do it because I'm trying to get rich? Do I do it because I'm trying to 
you know, climb the corporate ladder or for prestige or, or the appearance uh, among other people? Or do I do it because I'm trying to take care of my family? Do I do it because I'm trying to provide for the people that I love? Um, so question one and theme one is uh, what are the motives uh, that drive us? Another verse that drives us home, uh, chapter 46, verse 12. And it came to pass that he rent his coat and he took a piece thereof and wrote upon it in memory of our God, our religion and freedom and our peace, our wives and our children. And he fastened it upon the end of a pole. This, of course, is Captain Moroni uh, pulling out the title of liberty. And he's using this to motivate the Nephites to stand up for their rights, to stand up against the Lamanites uh, and their aggression. Uh, and, and using this as a reminder to them of what it is that should be motivating them. And so we might ask ourselves the question, do we remind ourselves? Do we put in place uh, reminders so that we can remember what it should be that is motivating us? What are the little things, you know, around your office or around your home to remind you, to keep your mind in check uh, about what it is that should be motivating you? Uh, you know, certainly in the church, we have several uh, of those things are, you know, for remembering our family, certainly our wedding bands are those. Uh, the sacred garments that we place upon ourselves every day uh, should serve as a motivating uh, reminder uh, of what motivates us, of the factories that drive us, the covenants that we have made uh, that, that move us forward and that are the focus, the focal point of our lives. Second theme. The Nephites were prepared for Lamanite attacks. Uh, we see this concept of preparation throughout these chapters. Captain Moroni is obsessed with preparing. And even when he has years of peace, he uses that peace to prepare for future attacks. Uh, verse 49, uh, chapter 49, verse 8. But behold, to their uttermost astonishment, they were prepared for them in a manner which never had been known among the children of Lehi. Now they were prepared for the Lamanites to battle after, after the manner of the instructions of Moroni. <clears throat> so the Nephites were prepared. Uh, so when the Lamanites came, it was not a shock to them. They knew what to do and they were prepared to meet them head on. And because of that preparation, uh, they had significantly more success than they otherwise would have. Now, one of the main uh, applications that I see within here, and it's something that I feel very strongly about, is how are we prepared, and, and can we use these war chapters uh, to discuss the solidification and the defense of our own testimonies, of our truth claims within the church? Um, you know, in some ways, the church. 20 years ago was not very well prepared, you know, to be honest, for, uh, for the internet phase, for a, a, a new phase, a new opening up. And in you know, fairness to the church, I don't think you know, it happened very quickly and it would have been very difficult for it to be prepared. But uh, you know, as the internet comes about, you know, children, lifelong members, everyone has uh, free unlimited access to a lot of information that before uh, took a lot of effort to go to and, and to acquire. Now with things available freely online, uh, it is much easier to get uh, information that is either, uh, that, that we'll just say questions the standard narrative uh, that has been commonplace within the church for things such as history or explanations of certain doctrines uh, that might be controversial. Uh, the church was for a long time able to easily control that narrative. Um, and, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, what was taught in your gospel doctrine class or what was taught in primary or what was taught in the family home evening um, actually, uh, you know, was consistent with reality and what actually happened, even, even if the church was trying to uh, put out a different narrative. In, in some ways, it was hard to do so and to filter that narrative uh, down through the main members. Um, but boom, here comes the internet and now we have no choice. And so I, you know, what I see happening within the church is a real, you know, a, a readjustment of, of strategy 
as, as, we, as we reconsider how to discuss uh, certain controversial issues, um, certain issues that cause many to, to wonder and to question. And, uh, you know, the, the question for each of us is, are we prepared and are our children and are our families prepared for uh, the things that they are inevitably going to hear or going to discover? And it's my belief that if the only stories or the only explanations that you have are the primary stories or the primary explanations or the simplified, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, whitewashed versions that we receive in church. And again, I don't say this in a derogatory or a means of attacking the church or the way it's done. Uh, when you have a lay ministry, uh, when you're, you know, your Sunday school teachers are volunteers who, you know, probably at best spend an hour or two reading through the lesson material uh, the night before they're pre to present the next day. And then those lessons are filled with the uh, opinions thrown out there by different members at church. Um, it shouldn't be surprised that if those discussions are not always especially nuanced or even especially uh, accurate in some ways. And if that's the source of our narrative, then all of a sudden we read something online or a loved one reads something online or we are confronted with information that we previously did not have before, uh, that can be very unnerving. And I think that's something that we have to be prepared for. We have to be prepared. We have to prepare ourselves in a way so that when this information inevitably comes to ourselves, or inevitably comes to our family, we are prepared to handle it. If all we've received is the, the primary story that we hear in church, when additional information comes, chances are we're not going to be ready to handle that. We're going to hear uh, stories that don't seem to be consistent uh, with what we were taught by our primary teachers or by our uh, young men or young women or advisors or even our Sunday school teachers. And when we hear uh, <clears throat> stories that appear to be true, and some of them are true, or, or different accounts of events uh, that don't seem to be consistent uh, with what we've heard at church, then we'll start to wonder, well, is what I heard at church true? Or is the church trying to cover up something? So I, I see the church is making a great effort with gospel topic essays, with, uh, with the saints uh, volumes, uh, one and two have come out. And in those, they do a very good job of trying to take a very honest, um, neutral, of course, the church is never going to be neutral on these issues, but, you know, I, I see them trying to take a true, as best they can, a neutral approach to, uh, to our history in some areas that might be um, subject to uh, attack or at least vulnerability from others. And the church is really making an effort now to give members the resources that they need uh, in order to be prepared. And there's a lot of really good resources out here. Hopefully you find these lessons as being one of those. <clears throat> I certainly don't try to, um, you know, cover up anything or whitewash anything. I try to present things in a way that uh, is both faith promoting, but at the same time, uh, you know, to my mind, reasonable. I don't see anything in here that uh, I think is unreasonable um, because it's very important to me to, to, to be honest. Uh, and if there are, you know, issues or questions, then, you know, if this church is true, then we should be willing to address them. Um, and there should be uh, not necessarily answers to every question that comes up, but certainly uh, explanations that put things in a light so that uh, questions are digestible. Um, so, you know, I'm of the mindset that, you know, there's always going to be questions out there. And I think that's intentional. And I think that's the way the Lord wants it to be. You know, take the Book of Mormon, for example. You know, if the Lord wanted everyone to have a testimony of the Book of Mormon, there would be irrefutable evidence that, you know, whether archaeological or uh, historical or in some other way, just complete irrefutable, scientifically proven evidence that the stories in the Book of Mormon are true. The Lord could have done that. The Lord certainly went out of his way to prepare the 116 pages, 
um, <clears throat> to prepare the gold plates. There's a lot of effort that went into the Book of Mormon. He very easily could have put things together in a way that irrefutable evidence uh, would have been placed there that would have been very difficult for the world to deny that this book is what it claims to be. As far as I know, that irrefutable evidence does not exist. Instead, what we have is uh, there is certainly much evidence, some of it is very, very good, um, that what we have in the Book of Mormon is true and is legitimate and is authentic. I think we discussed one of the strongest ones a few weeks ago as we discussed Alma chapter 36 and the chaotic structure that that goes to. Uh, you know, that was not something that the prophet Joseph Smith was aware of or that anyone was aware of at that time. But yet what we have in Alma chapter 36 is this amazing structure uh, that is consistent with Hebrew uh, literary forms that was apparently uh, written and made up by a farmer in 1820, in the 1820s. I mean, that's just kind of ridiculous. So to me, that's pretty good evidence that the Book of Mormon is, let's just say at least more than a story made up by, uh, you know, upstate New York Hayseed. Um, but there is some there there. But at the same time, there's a bunch of questions about the Book of Mormon uh, that at this time don't make sense. And so we're all kind of stuck in this middle ground. And so the question is, which side are we going to lean towards? You know, as you are confronted with evidence, both in favor of the Book of Mormon's veracity and against its truthfulness, which ones are you going to lean on? Which direction are you going to lead? Are you going to exercise faith and say, you know, there's a bunch of questions out there that I just don't know the answer to right now, but... I've had enough conviction within my heart. This book resonates with my soul. I see reasonable evidence and cool things out there that make me say, wow, there's, there's really something there. This isn't just uh, something that's made up. Um, and therefore, because of that, I'm going to lean in this direction. I'm going to lean in favor of faith. Or do you choose to lean in the other direction? And that's how I see faith working. And it's that, to me, it's that mindset that we come and we say, you know, there's some really cool stuff that causes me to drop my jaw in awe and say, this is unbelievable. This marvelous work cannot be anything but done by the hand of God. But at the same time, I also recognize there's some unexplainable things. You know, different leaders in the past made uh, decisions that are very inconsistent with modern uh, morality. And maybe were even inconsistent with morality at the time that they were alive. Uh, there was, you know, things that have been done, things that have been said, uh, explanations of things that end up being different, uh, and stories that are changing over time. Um, you know, things that, you know, are big question marks in my mind. Uh, which way do I go? And so I think, you know, kind of this understanding that there's evidences on both sides, and at the end of the day, it's up for us to exercise faith and decide you know, which side are we going to be on that is part of the preparation that is necessary. So this has kind of been a very long discussion about the concept of preparation, but I, I really believe one of the uh, important takeaways from these chapters is how do we survive with our testimonies in a day in which our testimonies are being attacked by the overwhelming of information on the internet a society that relies so heavily on scientific evidence and scientific discovery and the scientific process, you know, in a society in which, you know, history uh, and, and knowledge of the mistakes that people made uh, within our church's history uh, are, are very well known and are easily discover discoverable. How do we get through all of those attacks with our testimonies uh, intact? Uh, with our testimonies in place? And how do we help our, our, our spouses and our families navigate those attacks in a way so that they come out of this process with their faith still there, still trusting God, still trusting in Jesus Christ, still getting on their knees and turning to the scriptures and listening to, the modern, uh, to our living prophets for answers? How do we survive these attacks? 
And I think the lessons that we have from these war chapters uh, can be very helpful to that. And one of the lessons that I see is we have to be uh, pre prepared. Preparation is critical. We have to be active uh, in this. We have to be studying. We have to be thinking about these things. We have to desire uh, to know answers and be willing to put forth the effort to find them. We can no longer just sit and uh, absorb whatever it is we learn in primary or young men's, young women's or seminary. Uh, we, we have to make more of an effort than that. We have to be thinking. We have to be craving. We have to be constantly preparing and fine-tuning our preparations knowing that attacks are coming. Another element of the attacks are that uh, the Nephites were covered and protected while the Lamanites remained exposed. Uh, for this, we turn to chapter 43, verses 37 through 38. And the work of death commenced on both sides, but it was more dreadful on the part of the Lamanites, for their nakedness was exposed to the heavy blows of the Nephites with their swords and their scimitars, which brought death almost at every stroke. While on the other hand, there was now and then a man fell among the Nephites, but their swords and the loss of blood, they being shielded from the more vital parts of the body, or the more vital parts of the body being shielded from the strokes of the Lamanites by their breastplates and their arm shields and their headplates, and thus the Nephites did carry on the work of death among the Lamanites. So as part of the preparation that we need to make, we need to make sure that we are covered, that we uh, are prepared with the armor that is necessary in order for us to get through the battlefields. And so, you know, to take the discussion that we just had and carry it a little bit further, you know, we need to arm ourselves with information. We need to arm ourselves with a testimony. We need to arm ourselves with spiritual experiences and with instances in which we've drawn upon the Lord, that we have this reservoir of faith that we can draw from when we're presented with new information or a new situation that doesn't seem to be consistent uh, with our expectations or what we've previously been taught. Uh, so that, you know, so that we are prepared. And, and, I, and I love the idea that the Nephites protected their vital spots. They didn't walk around in, uh, you know, in, in straight suits that would have protected them but made it impossible to move. They knew where their vital spots were. And the vital spots of our testimony have to be Jesus Christ and his atonement and the process of the restoration, uh, which of course focuses on Jesus Christ. Those are the vital parts that we have to make sure that we have covered. Uh, you know, other areas subject to attack, you know, that's fine. You know, maybe the, the way in which we get comfortable uh, with more information being out there is we say, you know, yep, there were some things in the past that really didn't make sense and we made some mistakes, but let's focus on Jesus Christ. Let's not worry about the past. Let's recognize that no prophets are perfect, that no bishop is perfect, no 70 is perfect. Let's recognize people are not perfect, be charitable to them, and then move on trying the best that we can to focus on Jesus Christ and our relationship with him, making sure that our vitals are protected. And, uh, uh, okay, another verse that uh, discusses the same notion, chapter 44, verse 18. But behold, their naked skins and their bare heads were exposed to the sharp swords of the Nephites. Yea, behold, they were pierced and smitten. The end did fall exceedingly fast before the words, before the swords of the Nephites. And they began to be swept down, even as the soldier of Moroni had prophesied. So again, the, the Lamanites were exposed uh, because they were not well prepared. Let's make sure that we are not like the, the, the Lamanites in whatever battle it is we are confronting. We have to be prepared. We have to protect our vitals, recognizing that attacks are inevitable. Uh, another aspect of the Nephites uh, being prepared was that they had strengthened their weak places. And that's in chapter 48, verses 8 and 9. Yea, he had been strengthening the armies of the Nephites and erecting small forts or places of resort, throwing up banks of earth round about to enclose his armies, and also building walls of stone to encircle them about, round about their cities and the borders of their lands, yea, all round about the land. And in their weakest fortifications he did place the greater number of men, and thus he did fortify and strengthen the land which was possessed by the Nephites. Certainly wonderful life advice, whatever challenge you're confronting. 
you know, part of being prepared is, you know, first you have to recognize where your weaknesses are, and then you got to focus on those. You got to strengthen those. And that's exactly what uh, Captain Moroni did. And, you know, when it comes to our testimonies or those areas of church history or doctrine or whatever it is that we don't understand, uh, you know, don't be afraid to dive in. Don't be afraid to, you know, do so faithfully, but, you know, don't, don't be afraid of them. There's reasons for them. Uh, and don't be afraid to, to study those reasons out, uh, just remembering to do so in a prayerful and a faithful manner. Uh, another verse that gets at the same idea, chapter 49, verse 14. But behold, to their astonishment, the city of Noah, which had hitherto been a weak place, had now by the means of Moroni become strong, yea, even to exceed the strength of the city of Ammonihah. So Moroni spent lots of time uh, during these times of, during the, the little bit of peace that he had, to strengthen his weak places, uh, and that was one reason, a very critical reason, why he was able to withhold, withstand the attacks of the Lamanites. Okay, next theme. Again, so far we have uh, the Nephites were motivated by a better cause, and they were prepared for the Lamanite attacks. Next theme is that they recognized the hand of God in their actions. Uh, chapter 49, verse 28 came to pass that on the other hand, the people of Nephi did thank the Lord their God because of his matchless power in delivering them from the hands of their enemies. You know, I found that one of the big differences between those that have faith and those that don't is that they're simply willing to see the hand of the Lord uh, as he blesses their lives. Uh, you know, last week we were I was discussing with my children some of the uh, amazing experiences that my, my wife and I had as we moved from the U.S. to Hong Kong 10 years ago and how things just kind of fell into place. Uh, you know, and it was just incredible how bit after bit it was as the Lord was saying, hey, I know Hong Kong isn't necessarily your first, first, first choice, but here's a little package of love. Here's a little what other people might perceive to be a coincidence, but here's a little blessing that I'm going to arrange for you just to show you that I care about you, just to show you that I'm there, just to show you that this is my doing and everything is going to work out okay. Others might have viewed those as coincidences. I chose not to. I chose to view those as evidence that God was directing me, God was working in my life, leading me to a place where he wanted me to be, wasn't necessarily where I wanted to be, but it was where he wanted me to be. It was so that I could have the blessings and experiences that I wanted to have. And he provided that, those little packets of evidence. And I chose to see those rather than as being coincidences, but evidence that God was there and that he was directing my life. Another example, Alma chapter 44, verses 3 through 4. And now ye behold that the Lord is with us, and ye behold that he has delivered you into our hands. And now I would that ye should understand that this is done unto us because of our religion and our faith in Christ. And now you see that ye cannot destroy this, our faith. Now you see that this is the true faith of God. Ye see that God will support and keep and preserve us so long as we are faithful unto him and unto our faith and our religion. And never will the Lord suffer that we shall be destroyed except we should fall into transgression and deny our faith. And this is uh, Moroni uh, telling uh, Zarahemna, reminding him, hey, we're about to defeat you, and it's because God has delivered you. So even in his great success, uh, Moroni was always humble and gave recognition to God for that success. Uh, but of course, the Lamanites, not so much. Zerahemna's response to Moroni is in chapter 44, verse 9, where he says, Behold, we are not of your faith. We do not believe that it is God that has delivered us into your hands, but we believe that it is your cunning that has preserved you from our swords. Behold, it is your breastplates and your shields that have preserved you. Now, it's interesting here that, uh, you know, evidence of Moroni's faithfulness is that he prepared his people so well, as we just talked about one of our themes being. But, that preparedness, which was done in response to commandments of the Lord, evidence of his faith, that very preparedness made it seem to uh, Zarahemna that Moroni was not protected by God, but rather protected by these breast shields. 
Uh, and so again, this is part of choosing faith. Moroni chose to see the hand of the Lord in delivering him, but his enemies, those he was fighting against, they didn't see the hand of the Lord. They just thought it was, uh, you know, it was preparation or even uh, deceit or, or cunning plans, uh, as he says here, uh, that allowed them to be successful. Now, let the world say what it wants. Choose faith. Choose to recognize the hand of the Lord in everything that you do. And, uh, you know, as part of the Nephites uh, recognizing the, land of the, the hand of the Lord in everything that they do, as a result of that, uh, when they were pre- even when they were preparing for war, it had the effect of bringing them closer to God. That's uh, 48 verse 7 where it says, Now it came to pass that while uh, Amalekiah had thus been obtaining power by fraud and deceit, Moroni, on the other hand, had been preparing the minds of the people to be faithful unto the Lord their God. So Moroni was interested in making sure that his people, even while they're preparing for war, are drawing closer to God. And certainly we need to do that as well. You know, to take the situation in which we're preparing to make sure that our testimonies remain strong. Now, as we just said, don't be afraid uh, to confront issues that, you know, seem controversial or that you don't understand, but just make sure that you do it with an eye of faith. You know, just because somebody wrote some explanation on an internet website or on a YouTube video um, that seems to explain some event in church history or some doctrine in a negative light that seems very persuasive, while they may make some excellent points, don't assume that that's the only possible explanation for what happened. Uh, you know, look for other sources as well. Make sure you're looking balanced uh, for balance, and then you can make your decision. Which way are you going to look? To those who have no faith and are trying to tear down faith, or to those that are trying to preserve faith? Because there's always two sides to any story. There's always explanations in both directions. And it's our job to choose, are we going to lean towards faith or towards not faith? Uh, another theme, the Nephite's success in battle had the effect of strengthening the church. Uh, chapter 49, verse 30. Yea, and there's continual peace among them and exceeding great prosperity in the church because of their heed and diligence which they gave to the word of God, which was declared unto them by Helaman and Shiblon and Corianton and Ammon and his brethren, and by all those who had been ordained by the holy order of God, being baptized unto repentance and sent forth to preach among the people. So even though they're struggling and fighting for their lives here, they still drew closer to God and the church was blessed and strengthened during these difficult times. And you know, so, so in other words, we as a church shouldn't be afraid uh, of the challenges that, are, that have come our way and will continue to come our way. These are opportunities for us to be strengthened and for those that we love to be strengthened and for the church as a whole to be strengthened. Uh, the church can improve. There's many areas in which the church can do better. And as I said near the beginning, I think in some ways the church is doing better. It's being more open about some of the historical controversies uh, that might otherwise plague people or, or, or cause concern for people that hadn't heard about these things before. And that's an improvement. That's great. Uh, there's, I, I believe there's other ways in which the church will continue to get better in response to opposition that it confronts. And we sh- that shouldn't be something that you know, causes us to question, oh, are we really led by a prophet if we're making changes in response to opposition? That's silly. Of course we are. That, uh, just because we're improving because of complaints that are out there, because of ways we recognize ways in which we can do better, of course that doesn't jeopardize the prophetic nature uh, of the leaders of our church because a prophet is one who testifies of Christ, not who makes every single management decision perfectly. Uh, so we should expect the church to, to continue to improve. And it's exciting and we get to be a part of that. Uh, let's just not be afraid of it as it happens. Um, but even though the church was uh, growing and getting stronger and improving in meaningful ways, 
there was still uh, dissension in the church, which is uh, another kind of a sub-theme of, of the relationship between the church and, and what's going on here. That's chapter 45, verses 23 and 24. Now it came to pass that after Helaman and his brethren had appointed priests and teachers over the churches, that there arose a dissension among them, and they would not give heed to the words of Helaman and his brethren. But they grew proud, being lifted up in their hearts because of their exceeding great riches. Therefore they grew rich in their own eyes and would not give heed to the words to walk uprightly before God. So even as the church was having success, in part because of uh, their success in the battles that they were confronting, because of that success, some people grew proud in their heart and uh, started to move away from the safety of the church and trust in their own strength and their own riches uh, more than the blessings of the gospel. And that actually led to huge problems because it was these people who left the church that uh, teamed up with uh, Malachi uh, and, and eventually uh, you know, led to the kingmen and lots of really the catalyst for some of the worst wars that happened. Uh, and those stemmed from uh, people within the church getting prideful. So we need to be careful. We need to be watchful. Uh, we need to make sure that we are preaching uh, the humble gospel of the humble Christ uh, and, and checking our own pride at the door so that we are not those that uh, grow rich and begin to trust ourselves rather than trusting God and his plan for us. Uh, another important theme is that the, Nephite, the Nephites were led by men of God by righteous men. And the, the greatest example of that is Captain Moroni, who Mormon, we should note, was such a big fan of that he named his son after. Now, Mormon has almost a man crush, you could say, uh, on Captain Moroni here, because uh, uh, he's, he's quite the guy, and he was certainly singularly chosen by the Lord and placed in this situation to lead the Nephites through their difficult times. Chapter 48, verses 15 through 17. And this was their faith, that by so doing, God would prosper them in the land, or in other words, if they were faithful in keeping the commandments of God, that he would prosper them in the land. Yea, warn them to flee, or to prepare for war according to their danger. And also that God would make it known unto them whether they should go to defend themselves against their enemies. And by so doing, the Lord would deliver them. And this was the faith of Moroni, and his heart did glory in it, not in the shedding of blood, but in doing good, and preserving his people, yea, in keeping the commandments of God, yea, in resisting iniquity. Yea, verily, verily, I say unto you, if all men had been, and were, and ever would be, like unto Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever, yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men." What an incredible description of an incredible man that Moroni was. Another uh, wonderful description of him is found in a, uh, an incredible talk. If you haven't uh, listened to it before, it was given by the, uh, the incomparable Hugh Nibley, titled Leaders and Managers. He gave it a BYU uh, graduation ceremony. Uh, I didn't record the year, but it was many, many years ago. Uh, and in this talk, um, he, he compares... Nephi, or sorry, uh, Moroni is being the example of a perfect leader, whereas a manager uh, is uh, <clears throat> is uh, Amalekiah, is is an example of a ma of a manager, someone whose heart is not in the right position. And so, let me read from you his his brief description, kind of comparing and contrasting the two different styles between the Nephite leader, uh, Captain Moroni, and Amalekiah. The, the leader of the Lamanites, in which he said, But if Moroni hated war so much, why was he such a dedicated general? He leaves us in no doubt on that head. He took up the sword only as a last resort. I seek not for power, but to pull it down. He was determined to pull down their pride and their nobility, the pride and nobility of those groups who were trying to take things over. The Lamanite brethren he fought were the reluctant auxiliaries of Zoramites and Amalekiahites, his own countrymen. They grew proud because of their exceedingly great riches and sought to seize power for themselves, enlisting the aid of those who were in favor of kings, those of high birth, supported by those who sought power and authority over the people. They were further joined by important judges who had many friends and kindreds, the right connections are everything, plus almost all the lawyers and the high priest, to which were added the lower judges of the land, and they were seeking for power." All these Amalekiah 
wielded together with immense managerial skill to form a single ultra-conservative coalition who agreed to support him and establish him to be their king, expecting that he would make them rulers over the people. Many in the church were won over by Malachi's skillful oratory, for he was a charming, flattering is the Book of Mormon word, and persuasive communicator. He made war the cornerstone of his policy and power using a systematic and carefully planned communication system of towers and trained speakers to stir up the people to fight for their rights, meaning Amalekiah's career. For while Moroni had had kind feelings for the enemy, Amalekiah did not care for the blood of his people. His object in life was to become king of both the Nephites and Lamanites, using the one to subdue the other. Subdue the other. He was a master of dirty tricks to which he owed some of his most brilliant achievements as he maintained his upward mobility by clever murders, high-powered public relations, and great executive ability. His competitive spirit was such that he swore to drink the blood of Alma, who stood in his way. In short, he was one very wicked man who stood for everything that Moroni loathed. You know, great description, only as uh, whether Hugh Nibley could have described it. Contrasting the different leadership styles between Moroni and, uh, <clears throat> and Amalekiah. Moroni, motivated by the love for his people, motivated by the desire to do good, while Amalekiah, motivated for uh, simply his own power, his own desire uh, to achieve his own ends. Uh, so we need to be careful in who it is that we support and who it is that we look up to and making sure uh, that their motives are pure, uh, recognizing the limitations of human motives and, and human intentions, really, uh, while at the same time uh, checking our own intentions, our own motives, and making sure that as we lead others, whether it be within a church calling or more importantly within our family, that we are doing so for the right motives as well. Uh, next, the Nephites recognize the link between religion and freedom. Uh, and this is kind of an interesting one. Uh, chapter 46, uh, verse 15. And those who did belong to the church were faithful. Yea, all those who were true believers in Christ took upon them gladly the name of Christ, or Christians as they were called, because of their belief in Christ who should come. And therefore at this time Moroni prayed that the cause of the Christians and the freedom of the land might be favored. It's very clear as you read these chapters that there is a strong link between liberty in general and religious freedom. And now something, you know, that, it, it, that's interesting to me because those outside of religion often review, often view religion as a form of oppression, not something that goes hand in hand or, or hand in glove even uh, with the idea of liberty for all. But we as religious people should certainly be in favor of liberty for all. We should be supporting ideas that encourage liberty, not just our own liberty. We don't want to be like Amalekiah, seeking our own interest, but liberty for everyone. And why is it that religion and liberty so carefully go together? Uh, really, what I can come up with is, you know, as we've talked about here, you know, religion is based on faith. Religion is, in some ways, the irrational. It's what you cannot see. It's what you cannot scientifically prove. It's your hope and your expectations for the next life. It's your understanding of your relationship between you and the universe, you and the creator. You know, these are irrational things. These are things that, not, that cannot be scientifically proved. But we see governments are increasingly turning to the scientific, increasingly turning to the materialistic or to the, or to the rational, uh, turning away from faith. Uh, and in some ways, that turning has led to great advances in society. Who can deny the improvements in medicine and technology that we have experienced as science has uh, proliferated? Uh, but we need to be careful that we don't take that science and make it our God, recognizing that there are always going to be things that cannot be explained. And when it comes to the realm of the irrational, the realm of faith, the realm of religion, we need to make sure that the maximum amount of freedom is preserved. Obviously, that doesn't include the freedom to do harm to others. But when it comes to freedom to believe what you want to believe and say what you want to say, 
these chapters in the Book of Mormon are very clear that that is critical. And that is what they were fighting for, for their liberty, for their freedom, for their freedom to believe what they wanted to believe, to say what they wanted to say, to be as irrational as they wanted to be, as they want to be, to be constrained only by their faith. And that, I think, is a critical aspect of the tie between the push for liberty, which clearly was a motivating factor to Moroni, and his desire to unite his people around religion because he saw those two as being intimately connected. And I think we as Latter-day Saints have to be sensitive to that, that you know, recognize that the things that we believe are in many ways unprovable, uh, certainly by scientific method. And so we should be supporting the freedom and the liberty of all. You know, 11th article of faith, we claim the privilege of worshiping the Almighty God according to the dictates of our own conscience and allow all men the privilege the same privilege, let them worship how, where, or what they may. Uh, you know, that's an article of our faith is this idea of freedom. Let people believe what they want to believe, worship what they want to worship, because we expect those same rights for ourselves, and we have to expect and support those rights for other people, even if what they believe is different from ours. Uh, another theme, and we're getting towards the end here, uh, the Nephites knew that most people are decent people, but they can be led to do bad things. Let's return to chapter 46, verses 8 and 9. Thus we see how quick the children of men do forget the Lord their God, yea, how quick to do iniquity and to be led away by the evil one. Yea, and we also see the great wickedness one very wicked man can cause to take place among the children of men. I think we uh, have to be sensitive to the fact that we are in many ways the product of our own environments. I certainly was, you know, blessed to be born into a family of two believing uh, Latter-day Saint parents who taught me from the time that I was young to have faith in God, setting a wonderful example for me. I tried to do the same with my wife uh, and, and, and my kids to set that example uh, for them that they might uh, be faithful. And I'm grateful for that. But I have no idea what I would be like if I grew up in a different environment. If I was born up, if I was born and raised in a different religion, would I eventually gravitate to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because I would recognize the additional truth that it has? God, I sure hope to think so, but I don't know. Or to push it even further. What if I was born and raised in Nazi Germany at the time? It's nice to think that I would have been one of those that would have stood up and said, this is clearly wrong, let's choose a different path. Would I have? I have no idea. I have no idea. And I think we need to be humble about that um, as we interact with others, recognizing that the large majority of the people on the earth are good and decent people, trying to do the best that they can according to the light and knowledge that they have. If you have found the restored gospel and you have a testimony in it of it, be grateful for that. What an incredible blessing that is. But let's not be so arrogant to assume that no matter the situation that we were in, we would be that we started in, we would end up in the same blessed place. Clearly the Lord has put us in this place uh, for a reason, and part of that reason is to be sensitive to the feelings, to the experiences of other people. So as those who grew up in different environments make different choices or have a hard time believing the things that we believe, let's not criticize them for that. Let's recognize that different people growing up in different environments have different experiences and therefore they have a hard time uh, you know, reconciling with our experiences and come to different conclusions about very important questions in life. How will the Lord judge them? I don't know. But it's his decision to make, certainly not mine. But we can see here from these chapters that, you know, even though most people are good and decent people, and you know how many people were there where Mar Captain Moroni said, you know, as long as you covenant that you'll drop your weapons and stop fighting us, you can go in peace. Clearly Moroni believed that most people were good people. But people are susceptible to be led astray uh, by bad leaders. 
and are susceptible to arguments uh, against truth and against light. How will the Lord judge those people? Again, I don't know. It's not my decision. Thank goodness. It's the Lord that will have to make those decisions as to how others need to be judged. As for, as for me, you know, my goal, my responsibility is to love others and to set the best example that I can, teach truth as best I can, uh, hopefully doing that by my example as well. And if people believe it, great. And if because of their experiences, they make different decisions, what can I do about it? Other than be grateful for the experiences that I've had that have helped me to remain faithful. Um, and then another lesson that we take away from these chapters is once that once people, even though people are good and decent, they can be led astray. And once they are led astray, sometimes it's very, very hard to get back. Chapter 47, verse 36. Now these dissenters having the same instruction and the same information of the Nephites, yea, having been instructed in the same knowledge of the Lord, nevertheless, it is strange to relate, not long after their dissensions, they became more hardened and impenitent and more wild, wicked, and ferocious than the Lamanites, drinking in with the traditions of the Lamanites, giving way to in indolence and all manner of lasciviousness, yea, entirely forgetting the Lord their God. So we had a bunch of Nephite dissenters that went over to the Lamanite side, and they were the hardest of hearts. Uh, and that's sad, but that is a reality sometimes. And then the final lesson that we can take away from these chapters, or at least the ones that I identified, was that the Nephites were happy, even in the midst of their challenges. And that's chapter 50, verse 23. But behold, there never was a happier time among the people of Nephi since the days of Nephi, than in the days of Moroni, yea, even at this time, in the 21st year of the reign of the judges. So the takeaway from that theme, and maybe this is a, and this is a great place to end, is that even in our challenges, and maybe this because of our challenges, we can find happiness. We have to find happiness. That is why the Lord sent us here. He sent us here to be happy and to overcome and confront the challenges that he knew inevitably would come up. And if because of these challenges, if because of the decisions that other people are making or have made, or because we don't understand something, or because life doesn't go according to our expectations, we fail in our mission to be happy, uh, then we're not doing it right. Even in these times of wars, the Nephites learn to be happy, and we need to also. Recognizing that we are confronted with huge challenges, but that's part of life. The Lord still expects us to have a positive attitude to get up each day, to be happy, to confront our challenges with faith, and to move forward trusting in him, knowing that as we do so, in the end, we will be restored to the place that we are supposed to be. And that was our lesson last week, if you recall. Everything will work out as it is supposed to be, as long as our motives are pure, as long as we are prepared, as long as we take all the lessons of these war chapters and apply them to the challenges that we face in our lives, we can do so knowing that happiness is our eventual destination. And I hope that we will keep that in mind as we confront the challenges in our lives, that we will be as brave as Captain Moroni and the Nephites that he led in confronting our challenge, knowing that the Lord is there, knowing that he will bless us and support us, and that happiness is our eventual destination. And I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.